0: Good morning, church. Today's reading comes from Genesis chapter 29, if you want to follow along. Then Jacob went on his journey and came to the land of the people of the east. As he looked, he saw a well in the field, and behold, three flocks of sheep lying beside it, for out of that well the flocks were watered. The stone on the well's mouth was large, and when all the flocks were gathered there, the shepherds would roll the stone from the mouth of the well and water the sheep and put the stone back in its place over the mouth of the well. Jacob said to them, my brothers, where do you come from? They said, we are from Haran. He said to them, do you know Laban, the son of Nahor? They said, we know him. He said to them, it is, well, is it well with them? They said, it is well, and see Rachel, his daughter, is coming with the sheep. He said, behold, it is still high day. It is not time for the livestock to be gathered together. Water the sheep and go pasture them. But they said, we cannot until all the flocks are gathered together and the stone is rolled from the mouth of the well, then then we water the sheep. While he was still speaking with them, Rachel came with her father's sheep, for she was a shepherdess. Now as soon as Jacob saw Rachel, the daughter of Laban, his mother's brother, and the sheep of Laban, his mother's brother, Jacob came near and rolled the stone from the well's mouth and watered the flock of Laban, his mother's brother. Then Jacob kissed Rachel and wept aloud. And Jacob told Rachel that he was her father's kinsman and that he was Rebekah's son, and she ran and told her father. As soon as Laban heard the news about Jacob, his sister's son, He ran to meet him and embraced him and kissed him and brought him to his house. Jacob told Laban all these things, and Laban said to him, "'Surely you are my bone and my flesh,' and he stayed with him a month. Then Laban said to Jacob, "'Because you are my kinsman, should you therefore serve me for nothing? Tell me, what shall your wages be?' Now Laban had two daughters. The name of the older was Leah, and the name of the younger was Rachel.' Leah's eyes were weak, but Rachel was beautiful in form and appearance. Jacob loved Rachel, and he said, I will serve you seven years for your younger daughter, Rachel. Laban said, it is better that I give her to you than that that I should give her to any other man. Stay with me. So Jacob served seven years for Rachel, and they seemed to him but a few days because of the love he had for her. Then Jacob said to Laban, give me my wife that I may go into her, for mine for my time is completed. So Laban gathered together all the people of the place and made a feast. But in the evening, he took his daughter Leah and brought her to Jacob, and he went into her. Laban gave his female servant Zilpah to his daughter Leah to be her servant. And in the morning, behold, it was Leah. And Jacob said, said to Laban, what is this that you have done to me? Did I not serve with you for Rachel? Why then have you deceived me? Laban said, "'It is not so done in our country to give the younger before the firstborn. Complete the work of this one, and we will give you the other also in return for serving me another seven years.' Jacob did so and completed her week. Then Laban gave him his, son, his daughter Rachel to be his wife. Laban gave his female servant Bilhah to, to his daughter Rachel to be her servant. So Jacob went into Rachel also, and he loved Rachel more than Leah.' And served Laban for another seven years. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Thank you, Lauren. As I think one of my biggest takeaways from our Genesis series thus far has been the sovereignty of God. That God is sovereign. He's in complete control and he's personal. This narrative has been true in every story that we've looked at in Genesis thus far. And it's, again, true in our story today. But this story highlights something else in a different way. It highlights the providence of God, and it also highlights the special providential discipline of God in a special way. Although this story doesn't directly make any uh, theological points, not any direct theological points, ultimately, guys, this is a story of God's uh, providence, and it's a story of God's loving discipline. Better yet, this is a story of God providentially shaping Jacob through His loving discipline as He further expands His kingdom. This story uh, surprised me. It's a little bit more similar to my story than I realized. May in fact surprise you, as maybe it's a little bit more similar to your story than you realize. Explain. So, uh, back in chapter twenty-seven, we discovered that Jacob's not a very good guy, right? He's a liar. He's a deceiver. He's a manipulator. And he was also a man lacking faith. His father Isaac and his grandfather Abraham, they were men of faith. Uh, But what we discovered in the weeks past is that at that point, Jacob was not. Okay, although he'd been raised according to the faith, he probably knew the right things to say, probably knew how to act. His faith was not yet his own. It wasn't until last week when Kai covered chapter 28 that we saw Jacob's faith become his own. It, was, it wasn't until he was caught in his transgressions, when his sins were exposed, uh, that he was sent out into the desert on his way to Haran. And it was in that moment he had this encounter with God, and his life began to change. And I just thought, man, I, I wonder if anybody relates to that like me. Right? I, I grew up in the Bible Belt, Bible Belt, Texas. The buckle of the Bible Belt what they call Texas, right? There's a church on every corner. Uh, I grew up around people that had a faith. Uh, I knew the right things to say. I knew how to act, even though I didn't all the time. Uh, but my faith was certainly not my own, right? I, I, was, I was lost. And it wasn't until uh, a, a time in my life when my sins were exposed, my transgressions were exposed, that I went into a desert of my own making. And it was in that desert of my own making that I encountered God. I had a, a vision with God. I didn't have one like Jacob with angels ascending and descending uh, from a ladder, But I can say in my own desert experience that my vision became very clear. I knew that I needed a Savior. And a friend provided, uh, God provided a friend in my life who shared the gospel with me. Uh, God opened my heart, and I began to trust and believe in Jesus. And as we're going to see in this story, like Jacob, although I was made new, God lovingly disciplined me. He allowed me to go through and experience the consequences, not only of my previous sins, but, but other sins that were surfacing in my life. So, so maybe some of you can relate to that as well, right? On the, on the surface, it's maybe not easy to see that, but a lot of us have a story like that. So maybe like Jacob, God was and is providentially orchestrating all things together for his glory and your good and your life. right? As he lovingly and simultaneously shapes your life, and he, as he expands his kingdom. A little preview of the sermon today. Uh, guys, this story can be divided into two parts, uh, the well and the wedding, hence the title of this sermon. Uh, the verse, first 14 verses, 1 through 14, uh, are the, uh, describe the meeting at the well, uh, and the second half of the story, verses 15 to 30, describe the deception in the marriage. Uh, the meeting of the well is a clear display of God's providence. The deception in the marriage is a clear display of God's loving discipline. Before okay? My plan today is to cover both, but before we do, what I want to do is I want to build a little foundation regarding this doctrine of God's providence. I want us to be on the same page there, Uh, and I also want to build just a little backstory before we dive into this story. So uh, as an explanation of providence, let me say this. We could probably do an entire series on providence, Uh, and as I say that, I recognize we kind of have. I mean, from day one in Genesis, we have seen God providentially working through these narratives. But what I mean is we could dial in on the doctrine of providence for a long, long time. Not enough time today to get into as much as I would like to, but I do want us to uh, have a working definition that we're all on the same page with. So um, in summary, okay, I want to say that the term providence, uh, it's not used in scripture, but the term providence describes, generally describes God's ongoing relationship with his creation. I'm going to put this on the screen. It's a short definition for you guys to write down. God's ongoing relationship with his creation. That's a good working definition for us. And you're going to be glad I gave you the short one because I'm about to read a longer one to you uh, that would take you forever to write down. Uh, Wayne Grudem, uh, his systematic theology book is a book that we highly recommend here at Crosspoint. It's fantastic uh, work on theology. I think Grudem gives the best working definition of providence that I've seen thus far. So this this is the long version of what God's providence is. Grunham says, providence is God continually involved with all created things in such a way that he keeps them existing. Maintaining the properties with which he created them, God cooperates with created things in every action, directing their distinctive properties to act as they do, and he directs them to fulfill his purposes. It's an idea of God's providence. He's involved with his creation. He's personally involved. He's holding all things together. Uh, Another way to think about this is in a philosophical way. Um, this this illustration is helpful to me. I'm hoping it is for you as well. Uh, C.S. Lewis, in his book, Miracles, uh, he describes providence um, in this way. He basically describes a person who's on the second story of a house looking out through a window down at a garden. This is what he says. He says that when one looks at a garden from a room upstairs, it's obvious, once you think about it, that you're looking through a window. But if it's the garden that interests you, you may look at it for a long time without thinking of the window. According to the Bible, such as providence, God's providence is the window that's often hidden in plain sight. This is where he preserves and governs the world. So, guys, like the window, God's providence is always right in front of us. But for a lot of us, unless we're aware of the fact that it's in front of us, we're just not thinking about it. Maybe that helps you understand God's providence a little better. So, now that we're thinking about it, okay, let's dive in a little farther. The Bible says that Christ is upholding the universe by his power. And there's not a single sparrow that will fall to the ground without God's will. I thought about this verse as I was walking out of my office this past week. Saw a little bird dead on the sidewalk, and I thought, God's providence. I'd clearly been looking through this window all week, studying this. It was on my mind, but I thought, God knew about that. This did not happen without his will, his knowledge and his will. Okay, what God's providence means is there's no such thing as coincidence. There's no such thing as chance. There's no such thing as luck. All things function according to God's providence. So, as Kai said, if you show up to the chili cook-off here at the YMCA, it would, it would not be a similar coincidence, right? It would be God's providence, just to use that example. A verse that many are familiar with that highlights this truth is Romans 8.28. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who uh, for those who are called according to his purpose. That's a verse we're familiar with. It highlights God's providence. See, in this story, we see God providentially orchestrating all things together for the good of Jacob and the glory of God according to his purpose and well. this is our. This highlights our first spiritual truth today. God providentially guides his people. God providentially guides his people. Okay, and, and the way that God guides his people is clearly seen in this story as God guides Jacob through several providential appointments that we're going to look at. Um, another way of saying this, in the life of believers, there's no accidents. There's only appointments. And we're going to see God guide Jacob into these appointments. Uh, so the backstory story here, I covered a bit of it. Um, Jacob was a liar. He was a deceiver. He was a manipulator. He was not a good guy. Uh, he had tricked his older brother Esau out of his birthright using a can of more stew. That's what the Bible says. All right, well, Lance says that. Right? If you were here for that, you'd get that joke. I don't think I'll ever read this story without thinking about Denty stew. Uh, but after he got his father's blessing, uh, he was now running away from Esau, his older brother, who wanted to kill him. Uh, in fact, his, his father had sent him away and said, your older brother Esau wants to kill you. I want you to leave. I want you to go to the land of Haran. I want you to find a wife there. So he's on his way to Haran to find his wife, running from his older brother. And this is where we see Jacob's first providential appointment. Happens to be with God. Read along with me if you'll turn back a page or two to Genesis 28, verses 13 through 15. It's the story of Jacob's ladder. We covered it last week. I'm just going to touch on it today uh, to build the foundation for today's story. The text says, And behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie I will give to you and your offspring. Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth, and you shall spread abroad to the west and the east and the north and to the south. And in you and your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Behold, I'm with you, and I will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land, for I will not leave you until what I have done, what I have promised you. What a promise from God. God tells Jacob he's going to protect him. He's going to provide for him. He's going to bless him. He's going to provide offspring. That's an indicator he's going to have a wife. And just like his father and his grandfather before him, God makes a promise to Jacob that all of the families of the earth through his lineage will be blessed, that God's going to save the world through his family. Imagine how you'd feel in this moment. Probably a lot like Jacob. He's inspired. He's excited. Right at the end of chapter 28, it tells us he, he built a pillar to the Lord. He made a vow to the Lord. Uh, and then 29 starts out by saying that Jacob began his journey towards the place in the east. Uh, a literal, transla- literal translation of that verse, did some homework on that, actually says that Jacob picked up his feet and went. He was excited, he was inspired, he had some new pep in his step. So due to this providential appointment with God, he's got some new confidence, he's got this pep, he's excited, he's ready to see what God has in store for him. I just thought, is the the same not true for us? I mean, Kai talked about God's personal involvement in our lives last week, but is the same not true for us? I mean, shouldn't we be inspired and excited when we realize that God is sovereign, he's he, he's personal. He cares about us. He's in complete control. There's, there's no such thing as luck. There's no such thing as chance, but it's only God providentially guiding us. Or shouldn't this truth change our lives as well? I think it should. I like, Jacob. We can find confidence in the Lord. We can find confidence in him and his plan rather than trusting in our own. We can find that new pep in our step as we trust God with every detail of our lives. This is an amazing encounter with God, this providential encounter with God. Many of you may have had an encounter like this at some point, right? Maybe you were, you were lost. You were Your faith was not your own. Maybe you went and had a desert experience and, and went into a trial or a challenge, and, and maybe God used that time to open your heart and open your eyes to see him in a new way. And you guys have heard me talk about the book, The Valley of Vision, several times. I didn't bring it in with me. I don't have a slide for you this morning, but The Valley of Vision is a uh, it's a Puritan prayer book. It was given to me when we first started this church, uh, and it's been dear to me. And, and the valley of vision is this idea. Sometimes we, when we get in the valley, our vision becomes suddenly extremely clear of God. Right? We need him in those moments. I love what Charles Spurgeon once wrote about Jacob's appointment with God. I'm going to put this one on the screen. He says, I can hardly suppose that there was an individual more unhappily circumcised that night than Jacob was. But I question whether any individual in tent or palace woke up so happy in the morning as the patriarch did. Or oh, it was a night that might make us wish to lie beneath the same dews and look up at the same heaven. If we might see the same vision. We would put from us the downy pillow, the luxurious curtains, and the comfortable well-furnished chambers and say, Give us, O oh God, give us, Lord, if it might please you, that same desert place. If we might but see you and hear your voice as Jacob did of old. Love that, right? So the next thing we're going to see is Jacob's second providential appointment. It occurs at the well when he meets Rachel. So he's picked up his step. He's got the pep in his step. He's got this new confidence. He goes into the land of Haran. The text says that when Jacob gets there uh, to Haran, he finds a well. That's a significant little fact, as a well was a sign of blessing in the land. He goes, hey, this is a good thing. There's there, there's commerce here. There's good things going on here. Um, so, uh, he sees the blessing in the land. He then encounters some shepherds, discovers that his uncle Laban is alive and well. That's really good news for Jacob. Really good. Uh, many of us think that maybe this journey from his father's family to his mother's family was a short journey, but this journey was actually about a 500 mile trip. And so you can imagine how long it would take you to walk that distance. So uh, he, he left his father's family, he's had this desert encounter. Uh, he's now in Haran. He shows up, finds this swells, finds Laban's family. He's probably pretty encouraged at this moment. Hey, my Uncle Laban is doing well. There's a place for me here. There's a place I can belong. There's protection here for my family, or for me. And it also means, right, that God's promise to him is already uh, coming true. Um, This guy's off and running. He's inspired. He's doing well. And we start to see some changes in him. The first change we see in him is this crazy superhuman strength, right? Um, The text says that he actually rolled away this huge stone blocking the entrance of the well. Uh, if, if you do some history, you'll look at these wells. This is not a little rock, guys. This is a huge stone. The text describes three shepherds that are there. They're probably waiting for somebody else to come and help them move this bad boy. This is a big stone. Uh, but what does Jacob do? He moves this thing. And, and this is surprising, guys, because Jacob's not exactly known for his strength. That was his older brother Esau, remember? Jacob's the one that's known for staying in the tent and kind of being a mama's boy. Also... Although a lot of us probably picture Jacob being young, he's actually close to 80 years old in this story. Right, so the fact that he moves this stone is a pretty big deal. I, I told you he had some new pep in his step. He had some confidence. But I want to show you why this actually happened. He was, he's actually showing off. He's showing off for Rachel in this text. Right? I just thought, man, some things never change. It's just amazing what us men will do to show off to a woman at times. right? Uh, look at verse 10. It says, now, as soon as Jacob saw Rachel, the daughter of Laban, his mother's brother, and the sheep of Laban, his mother's brother, Jacob came near and rolled the stone from the well's mouth and watered the flock of Laban, his mother's brother. Then Jacob kissed Rachel and wept aloud, and Jacob told Rachel that he was his, her father's kinsman, and that he was Rebekah's son, and she ran and told her father. It's funny, right? I mean, the bro, he's showing off. He's showing off. He finds some superhuman strength, shows off with, for a girl. The text says that Jacob kissed her, and he wept. Uh, that sounds a little abrupt to me. I don't know about you. He just kissed her? Uh, I mean, just, is that, is that appropriate? Like, I don't know. But we're not sure if this was a romantic gesture. We're not sure if this was according to custom. There's a lot of commentators that go on both sides of that fence. Um, I, I will say I read one commentator say this may be the only circumstance in Scripture where a man would have kissed a woman according to custom like this. So my guess, and just personal guess, is that this is probably a romantic gesture that's hidden under the veil of a cultural custom, if that makes sense. He's he's already shown off. He's he's rolled that stone away. He picks her up. He kisses her, uh, and he did it appropriately because it's under the custom, right? Also, uh, in a few a few uh, minutes, we're going to see Laban actually kiss Jacob according to custom. So no doubt there's probably some custom involved. He may have just kind of used that to his advantage, if that makes sense. The text says that he cried. Why does he cry? Why does he cry? Uh, so he was probably overwhelmed, guy. He, he's probably overwhelmed. I mean, emotionally, uh, the fact that Jacob is meeting family, combined with the fact that his dad desired him to marry from the family of Laban, right? And the fact that Rachel is beautiful in form and figure, the text tells us, he's probably overwhelmed. He's just had this encounter with God. He's coming to this land. All these things are coming to be. I mean, he is overwhelmed. And even if he didn't realize this, he he no doubt realizes his life is different since he encountered the Lord. Um, There may be another component to this. Uh, If you recall, back in Genesis 26, Abraham had actually sent his servant, probably Eleazar, to this land, this similar region, to find a wife for Isaac. And when Eleazar arrived in this land, where did he arrive? What do you find? A well. Who do you meet at the well? Shepherds. Who else do you meet at the well? Rebecca, Jacob's mom. Coincidence? We know better. Providence, right? Even if Jacob didn't realize this, um, all of this, I mean, he's just there's enough going on right here to cause him to be emotional. So he's 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 weeping. Um, but what we see in the second part of this story. Is interesting, right? And it's helpful because if we didn't have the second part of the story, we might just stop here and we'd say, hey, the lesson for today is this. Lying, manipulating, deceiving equals the blessings of God. Because that's what seems to be going on with Jacob. Thankfully, we have the next part of the story. This is when Jacob meets his match. He meets his match and he finds God's means of discipline. This is the third providential appointment in the story. It's with Laban. Look with me again in verses 13 through 19. As soon as Laban heard the news about Jacob, his sister's son, he ran to meet him and embraced him and kissed him and brought him to his house. And Jacob told Laban all these things, and Laban said to him, Surely you are my bone and my flesh, and he stayed with him a month. And then Laban said to Jacob, Because you are my kinsman, should you therefore serve me for nothing? Tell me, what shall your wages be? Now Laban had two daughters. The name of the older was Leah. The name of the younger was Rachel. Leah's eyes were weak, but Rachel was beautiful in form and appearance. And Jacob loved Rachel. And he says, I will serve you seven years for your younger daughter, Rachel. And Laban said, it is better that I give her to you than I should give her to any other man. Stay with me. And so Jacob does. He stays with Laban for a month. And during this month, he becomes absolutely lovesick with Rachel. Okay, He's already shown off. He's moved the stone. He's kissed her. I mean, this month, this dude is lovesick. Um, he's probably uh, he and Rachel probably having long walks. They're having long talks. I mean, this is like lovey-dovey stuff going on here. I I think back to my days when I used to do a lot of premarital counseling, and I'd look back. I'd look at this these young couple. and They're just totally in love with each other. And I'd ask the the, the bride to be this question. I'd say, "Hey, does, does your fiance does your man does he listen to you? Yeah. Does he really get you? Like, yeah. Do y'all love spending time together? Yeah." I just go, hey, just so you know, this is probably the best you're ever gonna get right now. (laughs) I just think of them in this moment, like the long walks, the long talks, like, man, they're connecting. He is lovesick. And Laban knows it, and he preys on this dude's vulnerability. He forms his plan. So after a month's up, Laban says to Jacob, hey, he wants to pay him. He goes, I wanna pay you. Name your wages. He doesn't offer him a wage, he says, name your wages. And so what Jacob doesn't realize here is that Laban's a master manipulator who's going to control the next 20 years of his life. See, back in this time, it was custom to give the father a bride to gain permission to marry the girl, to court this girl. Um, and, and, but remember, Jacob doesn't have any money. He got his father's blessing, but he left his father's family quickly. He didn't bring money with him. So he doesn't have any money. So what he does is he goes, hey, I'm, I'm, I'm going I'm to work for you Seven years. Seven years. And so he offers seven years as payment for this. I thought about that. I thought, man, you know, I don't know about you dads, but dads that have daughters, that's not a bad timeline, actually. Think about my daughter. If some guy wants to court her, I'm going to say, how about seven years? How about seven years you work for me, right? Um, I think there actually could be some truth in the reality that a man should be willing to work and wait for a woman, but that's another sermon. But Jacob offers this seven years payment. And I want you to know, guys, back in this time, seven years labor would have been an exorbitant amount of money for this. Exorbitant amount of money. Way beyond the normal amount. And Laban owns him in this moment. He owns him in this moment. What Jacob doesn't realize is that Laban used this and he manipulated him. If you read closely in the story, you'll see that Laban doesn't ever actually say yes. He doesn't say yes. Anyone ever heard the phrase, they heard what they wanted to hear? That's exactly what's going on with Jacob in this moment. He hears exactly what he wants to hear. Um, Jacob being so deeply in love, he missed this entirely. And so this is the second part of the story uh, with the deception of the marriage, and this brings us to our second spiritual truth, that God providentially disciplines his people. God providentially disciplines his people. So we're going to keep going in the story, but I want to be real clear here. Theologically, providential discipline does not mean that God sins or causes evil. Okay, as he does not it does mean however that God will sometimes use sin and evil to accomplish discipline and correction in his people and that's what we're going to see go on here we're also going to see this come up again in the this, in this story of Joseph uh, but in the meantime let's see what happens with Jacob so verse 20 it says so Jacob served seven years for Rachel and they seemed to him but a few days because of the love that he had for her uh, one commentator I read highlights this verse is the Hallmark card line of the Bible Right? And they seemed to him but a few days because of his love for her. That's romantic, right? Uh, t- verses 21 through 24. Then Jacob said to Laban, give me my wife that I may go into her, for my time is completed. There's all kinds of Hebrew commentary on that verse. There's kids in the service not going into that day. So Laban gathered together all the people of the place and made a feast. But in the evening, he took his daughter Leah and brought her to Jacob, and he went into her. And Laban gave his female servant Zilpah to his daughter Leah to be her servant. So... Seven years is up. Uh, The text says it was only a few days to Jacob, right? Uh, Jacob the deceiver, who previously deceived his father, is now deceived by his father-in-law on his wedding night. Jacob the deceiver is now deceived by his father-in-law on his wedding night. This is actually how this happened, as we don't know. Tons of speculation here. Uh, A lot of folks think that Laban probably ensured that Jacob had some extra wine probably ensured that it was extra dark. He no doubt dressed up Leah like Rachel and put her into the wedding tent. And the next morning, Jacob, as you can imagine, was shocked. This dude's shocked. One commentator says, With Rachel, Jacob had love at first sight. With Leah, he had shock at first light. <laughs> this brother is shocked. Let's look at verse 25. He says, In the, mor- in the morning, behold, it was Leah, And Jacob said to Laban, what is this you've done to me? Did I not serve with you for Rachel? Look at his next line. Why then have you deceived me? Big turning point for Jacob there. Laban said, it's not so done in our country to give the younger before the firstborn, complete the week of this one, give you the other one also in return for serving me another seven years. Can you blame Jacob for being shocked in this moment? No. I mean, homeboy's worked for seven years for Rachel. He's tricked. Now he has to work another seven I think I'd be shocked too. But is he mad? I don't know. I don't really think he has a a right to be. See, Jacob told Laban, he said, you deceived me. Why then have you deceived me? But if you think about it, he's really just getting a dose of his own medicine. I want you to listen to some parallels here. Remember how Jacob's mom dressed him up in goat skin like his brother to deceive Isaac? In this story, Laban dresses up Leah like Rachel to deceive Jacob. Remember how Jacob ignored the rights of the firstborn as he falsely represented himself as Esau? In this story, Jacob's deceived by Laban, who falsely represents his firstborn as Rachel. Some people might say, according to the old Atlantis Morissette song, isn't this? But we know better, right? It's not ironic, it's providential, it's God's providence. The story is like so many stories that we stare at for so long that we forget that we're looking through the window of God's providence. In Laban, Jacob met his match, and he met his means of discipline. In this story, God used Laban like a rod of discipline to straighten out Jacob. It's another way of putting it. So, so after Jacob says to Laban that he deceived him, and Laban gave his comeback about the younger, the firstborn, that whole thing, we don't see Jacob argue with Laban, do we? He doesn't. We never hear him argue. Why? The dude is cut to the heart. I mean, he has just received a full dose of his own medicine right here. He knows that what just happened to him is what he did to his brother. It stops him in his tracks. It humbles him. It's a dose of God's discipline. So Something I made clear a minute ago is that God does not sin or evil. But something else to make clear here is the difference between God's punishment and discipline, just in case any of you guys are having that question. Uh, I want to point you to a verse, Hebrews chapter 12, verses 5 and 8. This will be on the screen. It says this, My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves, and he chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom the father does not discipline? If you're left without discipline in which we've all participated, then you are illegitimate children and not really sons. What we learn from this is God's discipline is loving. It's a good thing. I'm going to put some bullet points on the screen for you to see some parallels here. God's punishment stems from his wrath against sin. God's discipline stems from his love for his children. God's punishment is God acting as judge, and God's discipline is God acting as father. God's punishment ends in separation, but God's discipline draws us near. Is that parallel? It's different. In summary, believing and trusting in Jesus, guys, it frees us from the punishment of God, as Jesus Christ has paid for uh, the punishment that we deserve, the death that we deserved, on the cross, and it places us under God's loving, care and correction as a Father. Hebrews 12 tells us that if we do not have God's loving discipline, we're illegitimate children. We're not truly His, we're not truly His disciples, right? Loving discipline is a good thing. So uh, I just thought, hey, what do, we, what do we learn from this? I mean, most of us don't like the idea of discipline, right? I mean, how do we reconcile this? Uh, I think from this story, we can actually learn to see God's discipline as a good thing. Uh, Proverbs says that a parent that does not discipline their children hates their children. It's harsh language. Uh, so I think we would all agree that a good, and parent, a good parent instructs and disciplines their children. They do that for their children's good. Discipline is, exists because it's good for us. All right? And one of the things we learn from this story is that God sometimes allows hardship to come into our lives as a form of discipline. Remember, God doesn't cause the sin, but he will use the sin to shape us. Okay? I, want you to, I want to take this thought a little farther. I mean, if you think about it, we don't come into the world perfectly sanctified, do we? We don't come into the world with wisdom and theology and holiness. We come into the world as sinners. For those of us that are believing and trusting in Jesus Christ, God called us. He adopted us into his family. And then God does what a loving father does. He instructs us. He disciplines us. He matures us. I mentioned earlier this story is a little more similar to mine than I'd realized. Maybe for you as well. Uh, I mentioned that after I became a believer, uh, I'd suffered the consequences of a lot of my previous sins. A lot of my previous mistakes, and, and guess what, guys? It was painful. It's very painful. But I look back on that time now, and I'm thankful for it. I'm thankful for the way that God used that time to shape me. I, in fact, I think I'm thankful for every trial I've ever had as God has used those times to shape me. Um, the saying goes that hindsight's always clear, right? Right? Um, I think that's actually a good way to look through the window of God's providence, through hindsight. I mean, how many times have we gone through a difficult time, and we've come out on the other side, and we said, man, now I see what God was doing there. Oh, now I see. Now I see what he was up to. I didn't get it when I was in the middle Oh, but I see it now. Hindsight's clear, right? When we think through providence, uh, through the lens of hindsight, it all of a sudden becomes very clear. God knows what he's doing. Uh, another thing sometimes we say is, hey, I wouldn't wish that on anybody. Man, I am so thankful I went through that time because God used that to shape me. He used that to remove foolishness and, and laziness and, and sinfulness in me that I didn't even know that I had. I'm so thankful for that time. Wouldn't wish it on anybody. But man, I'm, I'm glad that God put me through that. We say stuff like that. right? I know that I've said stuff like that. As the reality is that God disciplines his children in many ways. Sometimes it's through hardship. Sometimes it's through a difficult relationship like Laban. Sometimes it's through the church. It's through God's people. But regardless, something we can take away from the story is that we can trust in God's providential discipline. We can trust him. He's sovereign. He's personal. He's providentially involved in every aspect of our lives. Maybe we can begin to grow. I pray that God would grow us rather than rescue us as we most often do when we go through trials like this. Maybe we could begin to pray, not that God would remove us uh, from the current circumstance we're in, but rather pray that God would use the current circumstance we're in to shape us and to mold us. Those are some big, bold prayers, but I think those are some takeaways we can, we can pull out of this story. Right, Jacob, man, he experienced this in a very difficult way, but he endured. He endured. See, prior to Jacob's encounter with God in the desert, Jacob was a liar. He was a deceiver. He was a manipulator. As previously mentioned, this dude, he's not a good guy. Right? But after his encounter with God, he's different. Uh, in this story, we see God chose Jacob, He made himself personally known to Jacob, and we saw his joy displayed in the evidence of his life. He was a new man. We also saw the evidence come out and, and, and that, that evidence come out in his life. Okay, after he experienced this trial, he no longer lied. Uh, we don't see him taking shortcuts in this story. Right? We don't see him firing back to Laban with that whole comeback that Laban gave. We see him take the dose of his own medicine begin to embrace God's loving discipline and learn this lesson that he needed to learn. He endured. The total timeline of the story, guys, it represents about 20 years. 20 years. What this means is that for 20 years Jacob endured the loving discipline of the Lord. Don't you know that was tough? I mean, it's in a big place. You're kind of seeing the same people all the time. You're around Laban, you're around Rachel, you're around Leah. Like there's there's got to be some tension here. He endured this though. All right? Although later, uh, in Genesis 31, we hear uh, Jacob describe that Laban cheated him 10 times, we don't ever hear of Jacob trying to get back at Laban. Lesson learned. He he took his dose of discipline, he learned his lesson, and he endured. For 20 years, Jacob endured the hardship of discipline as God, his father, father, not the punisher, shaped him. In fact, uh, at the end of his life, he even referred to God as the God who's been my shepherd all my life to this day. Genesis forty-eight fifteen. I love that. That's hindsight. That's his hindsight. He looks back. God's been my shepherd all my life to this day. So, so far we've drilled down on Jacob's story to see God's hand of providence in his life. Uh, we've seen that God providentially provided uh, appointments in his life. God providentially disciplined him. Uh, but quickly, guys, I want to take it a step farther because uh, I don't want us to miss the big picture of this story either. So in order to see the big picture, I want us to turn our attention to Leah for just a moment. Um, Leah on the surface might be, looking at Leah on the surface might seem strange because of her seemingly kind of insignificant role in this story. But guys, I got to tell you, after I studied this passage, I kind of wanted to do a whole other sermon just on Leah. There's a whole lot here with this woman. I don't want us to miss the big picture spiritual truth that God providentially expands his kingdom. And Leah plays a big part of this. So that's the third spiritual truth today. God providentially expands his kingdom. See, everything that happens in our lives is under God's providential control. Everything. We've covered that. But everything that happens in our lives is ultimately a piece of the bigger picture of how God is building his kingdom. So let's continue in the story. Let's look at verses 28 through 30 uh, as we keep going. Jacob did so. He completed the week. Then Laban gave him his daughter Rachel to be his wife. Laban gave his female servant Bilhah to his daughter Rachel to be her servant. So Jacob went into Rachel also, and he loved Rachel more than Leah, and served Laban for another seven years. So the fact that Jacob completed his week means that he completed the week long marriage ceremony. Don't you know that was humiliating for that brother? Right, he's worked seven years to get Rachel. He's tricked. He marries Leah. He's in front of everybody. they got ceremonies all week. He's sitting next to Leah, not Rachel. Once you also know that created a lot of tension between these two sisters. Can't imagine what that was like. What a mess. There's actually a verse later in Leviticus 18.18 18, that forbids a man from marrying two sisters. have to believe it has something to do with this little thing right here. Okay? The tension that what must have existed there was crazy. The text says that Leah had weak eyes. She had weak eyes. Lots of speculation on what that could mean. Basically, it means she wasn't much to look at. Okay, she wasn't much to look at. She she was homely. She grew up in the shadow of her younger sister, Rachel. She was easy to overlook. The Jesus Storybook Bible actually refers to Leah as the girl that no one wanted. Man, that's kind of harsh. She was the girl that was easy to overlook. This may have contributed to her willingness to go along with her father's plan because we don't hear about her kicking and screaming when her dad dressed her up like her younger sister to marry Jacob, right? She's been easily overlooked. She's been caught in the shadow of her sister for a long time. Might have had something to do with that. We don't know. But she's a girl who's easy to overlook, right? God didn't overlook her. God doesn't overlook her. Jacob may have loved Rachel more than Leah, but God loves Leah. If you read on the story, the text says that because the Lord saw that Leah was hated, harsh. He opened her womb, but Rachel was barren. there's so much more I'd like to say about that. Well, what's interesting is that the Lord grew Leah in this story also. It's another side of his providence. Um, The first three times, it says the Lord opened her womb, right? The first three times that Leah becomes pregnant, she becomes pregnant with sons. And if you read in this story, you'll hear her use language like, uh, maybe my husband will love me now. Maybe my husband will love me now. She says that every time the first three sons are born. But the fourth time, She has a son. She says something different. This time I will praise the Lord. This time I'll praise the Lord. So there's this whole other story going with Leah that I wish I could dive into today. But in the big picture of this story, God's not only providentially working in Jacob's life, he's working in Leah's, and he's expanding his kingdom. See, God made a promise to save the world through Abraham's family, and that's exactly what he's doing. He's holding to his promises. God taught Jacob a lesson for deceiving his brother. In the story, God provided a husband for Leah. And most importantly, God providentially orchestrated these events so that Jesus would be born in the future family of Leah. Her fourth son, Judah, one of the 12 tribes of Israel, is in the lineage of Jesus himself. It's an amazing story of God's providence. Amazing story of God's providence. So, uh, I mentioned earlier that this story was more familiar to mine than I realized. By the way, not in the sense of polygamy, right? should have said that. But in the sense that I made a lot of mistakes prior to knowing Christ, and I've made a lot of mistakes since knowing Christ. But that's my takeaway from this. is I'm just I'm thankful for the loving correction that I have received from a loving father since I've trusted Christ, right? So maybe this story is similar to you. Maybe you take away something similar. Maybe at some point you had an appointment with God. He opened your eyes uh, for a season. You had that new confidence. You had that pep in your step. Uh, but maybe then somewhere along the way you experienced a trial. You experienced some hardship. And without a proper understanding that it may be God using that hardship to form you and shape you according to his discipline. Man, maybe you saw that as punishment. Maybe you saw, hey, man, this whole Christianity thing's not working out. I'm gone. So maybe today, maybe you've, you've wandered at some point. Maybe you're wandering today. I don't know. I hope that you're encouraged by this story that whatever it is you're going through today, it's not a surprise to God. He's, he's using it. And so I'd like to encourage you to maybe share with your community group some ways that you've seen God's providence work out in your life in hindsight. I think that may be encouraging to other people in your group. i also like to encourage you to invite others to maybe uh, challenge you to pray, um, courageous prayers. Like, hey, when you hear somebody, when you say something to your group about going through a difficult time, invite your group to say, hey, please pray for me and comfort me in that. But will you also remind me not to just pray for a rescue. Will you remind me to pray to see this hardship through the lens of God's providence? Maybe he's using this in my life to shape me and grow me. Man, I'd love to see community groups uh, holding each other accountable and praying for each other in that way. All right, so... This story just gives me confidence. It puts a pep in my step. It provides comfort. It provides purpose. Uh, guys, we're a part of this plan. Nothing happens by accident. Uh, I love what John Calvin says about providence. This is uh, one of the final things I'll say to you. Is, when, whenever we may wander in uncertainty through intricate windings, we must contemplate with eyes of faith the secret providence of God which governs us and our affairs and leads us to unexpected results. I love that quote. Just a reminder, hey, Anything we're going through, let's try to look through that window of providence. Let's see, hey, what is God up to, up to here? How does he want to form me and shape me here? Um, I want us to pray, and we're going to move into the time of uh, the Lord's Supper. Uh, and I'm going to say a few more things about this story connecting it to the Lord's Supper I think will be encouraging to you today. So let me pray. Father, I thank you uh, for historical stories like this that you have put in, uh, in your word, your living and active word that does fully equip us for every good work, even stories uh, like this one. Just thank you for how you opened my eyes to so much in this story, uh, to just how you providentially guide us, how you providentially discipline us, how you are always providentially expanding your kingdom and how we can be a part of that. God, I just pray that, uh, that, that each and every one of us would not only be uh, encouraged by this, but equipped this week as we go into uh, our work week, our school week, whatever we have going on in our lives this week, uh, looking through uh, the window that is so often hidden in plain sight of your providence and how you are intricately working in our lives. God, helps us see our purpose in your story, that you've called us to be a part of your story, to play a part, to grow, to mature, to expand your kingdom. I thank you for this text. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.